Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dad, what's going on? How's your week been? You know, I've been grinding, I've been traveling, and I honestly, I just want some sleep. I need a vacation. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's like that sometimes, you know, mid, mid-October, mid trying to finish out the semester, give it to that holiday season, which I feel is like a whole different rush in itself. Yeah. Uh, the holiday season from day, between Thanksgiving and New Year's, it's like just a lot going on, travel, family stuff, you know, trying to get mm-hmm. to but so, so it's also... Sometimes that's supposed to be a break, but that doesn't even feel like a break at all. Yeah. This is like around like fall break time for a lot of colleges, but because I'm not taking classes and my work is just writing, I don't get a fall break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had my fall break. Had a whole week off, but it really wasn't a week off. <laughs> you know, what do you I, do? Because of this, you know, I'm chairing the search, so... Okay. No, that just spending all my time getting that together, you know, the logistics portion, all that stuff just kept me kind of busy. So it really wasn't I wasn't really doing like classwork, preparing for my classes, but just getting that. So I had to take care of that. But that's all, you know, ready to go and ready to rock. So so I wish I was able to relax a little bit more, but it wasn't bad. At least I didn't have to teach. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Good luck so, to those candidates, because I know plenty of people on the job market. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember, and that's the cool thing, you know, about I guess one of the good things I like take pride in, as far as myself being junior faculty, not doing and doing this not too long ago, is that when I make their schedules and stuff like that and itineraries, I keep a lot of things in mind, like because mm-hmm. I was I was there, like so giving them breaks, you know, having things in a certain order. So some things are intense, less intense, not having like two intense back to back things, you know, trying to just keep that in mind. So at least it'll be not a rough experience for them and they can put their best foot forward and all spot. So I take, you know, those all those a lot of work I, I I'm trying to help them out a little bit mm-hmm. when it comes mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Um but all right, you know, it's been a couple of weeks and I got some interesting old Lord news stories for this week yes. uh, to, to talk about. So I guess we can get right into it. Mm-hmm. Hello and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that will make you want to say. Okay, so this first story is actually an update. Um, So in the spring, we talked multiple times about the crazy Dominican Republic situation where people were just dying suddenly. Mm -hmm, Right. You remember mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Well, the FBI finished its investigation into the mysterious deaths of uh, Americans in the Dominican Republic. And they said the results um, of, you know, additional extensive toxicology tests um, have found results that were consistent with local authorities that said all of these people died of natural causes. Yeah, you know, I don't, when I was reading that, I think it wasn't, um, 
I don't think it was, well, at least when I read it, it wasn't all of them. It was like okay. three out of the eleven or something like that. Oh. Or ten, they said had uh was consistent of like natural causes. I think somebody, you know, blood related, heart related. Two of them I think had heart related things. And I can't remember what the third one had. Um, but they still said for the other ones that's unknown yet. Okay, okay. Because I was about to say, I was going to call BS, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no way that all of them had, that would be, that would be BS. If you're saying all these folks had natural causes. So, so yeah, but people were running with that story, trying to say like, oh, you know, and trying to, it sounded like even from the couple articles I read, they were like trying to get people to relax a little bit and like go back, travel to the DR and be less worried. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't pull that trigger all the way just yet. Absolutely. Um, So for my second uh, story, and I've already told you how like fishy this person seemed to me and now even more so. But did you hear that Tulsi Gabbard has been endorsed by David Duke? Oh, no, I hear this one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yo, we got to definitely get an old Lord for that one because that's crazy. Yeah, but other people that are fans of her, I don't know if they have formally endorsed her, but other people that have expressed their like of Tulsi Gabbard include Steve Bannon, Tucker Carlson, Richard Spencer, um, David Duke, and it's just kind of like it's a bunch of conservative people. Oh, girl, bye. There's no way. It's yeah. not we're taking this chance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that's interesting because, like I said earlier, when we talked about it a few weeks ago, I was like, yeah, maybe she's when she was like protecting Biden. I was like, oh, maybe she's trying to get a VP bid with somebody. Uh, but nobody going to touch her with those kind of endorsements. Yo, <laughs> it's not happening at yeah. all. And, you know, she her response to that is like, oh, people are talking about these endorsements like to detract or distract away from my message. Like, nah, I really want to know, because if certain people endorsing you, I'm I'm not with I'm not with the shits. <laughs> yeah, no way. No way. Nobody as a black person, no affiliation with KKK is, is, is working for us. Can't have that. Sorry, Tulsi. I mean, not that you was gonna win it anyway, uh, but this really, this really uh, closes the door on that opportunity. If that's the case. Yeah. I'm sure if she makes it to the next um, debate, you know, I'm sure somebody I would take a shot. Yeah, I would throw it out there. <laughs> I, I will say though, you know, so that we're not being like all fake newsy. She did, you know, reject that endorsement, but still, oh, I bet she did. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I bet she did. <laughs> but it says something, you know, that they are like they want to support you. Um, it's not a good look. It's not a good yeah. Look. They say it's because she puts quote America first. Um, I don't know though. What is that? What does that mean? White folk first? That's all that means. Well, actually, I I think David Duke said that, like, she doesn't want to send our white sons off to war to, you know, fight other people's wars or something like that. So, yeah, but I thought a lot of the people on the debate stage says that. (laughs) That's weird. But yeah, of course, they wouldn't say because for their real reasons, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. You said you had some stories. Yeah, I got a couple stories. Uh, Man, okay, let me go and begin. One uh, story that was coming across my timeline uh, has that, you know, Sesame Street, which we're all familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. Going up. And every now and then they introduce new Muppets. Well, recently, Sesame Street has introduced a little green Muppet named Carly. Mm -hmm. And pretty much uh, the significance of her introduction is that. 
she has a mother who has an opioid addiction. Oh, wow. They yeah. really went there. They really went there, man. So pretty much her storyline is kind of geared towards what they say is about 5.7 million children who are in this same position with parents who have substance abuse issues. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. Some people have applauded this and others have kind of raised their eyebrows like, okay, now, like, why now with this particular addiction do you think it's necessary to discuss and be sympathetic towards, right? Uh, we know what we talked about before, all these other kinds of addictions. I don't think we've seen uh, Sesame Street characters that were sympathetic to the, the issues going on in black communities. Although, you know what? I did hear a while ago that they did have, and I mean, but I hate that this is what is associated with the black community, but they had a Muppet um, whose parent was incarcerated. Was in prison. Was in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard, oh yeah, that one. That one was there too. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we could give them, uh, again, like you said, it. And that's why does it have to be those kind of things, too? You know, why got to be like incarceration, addiction? You know, why can't we have it be more positive things? I don't know. You know, I guess we just want to give, you know, children in these situations, like, I guess somebody to relate to. They want to see them. Like, I haven't watched Sesame Street since I was a child. So I don't actually know the dialogue that goes on. Like, if, you know, they're using this as like, therapy through the TV or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure, but just wanted to update people on that. So if you have any, you know, young, young children, you might want to peep that out, check out the new puppet, see what it's like. Let us know. Um, another story I want to talk about was like, it's all in the same state, but we talked about California before and some of the reforms they've been doing when it comes to, you know, criminal justice reform, they've really been ahead of the pack with that. And it, it's, they are just making all these new laws. And I'm like, I might have to move to to California because <laughs> what? So they have a, a new law where um, where they ban um, for profit prisons and immigrant detention facilities that came mm. out recently. They have another one where they uh, California new California law pushes uh, back school uh, pushes back school to start times to improve student performance. So school kids get to go to school a little later now, about 30 minutes than normal, um, mm. which they find is helpful when it comes to schools, uh, kids performing better in schools. And also with the schools, they fight uh, kind of lunchroom humiliation by guaranteeing state funded meals uh, for kids as well. Um, so pretty much no kid will go hungry in a California state public school um, like the past when there were kind of issues with that. Um, so even if a, cause sometimes if a parent kind of has unpaid meal fees or whatever, they wouldn't give the kids the tickets. And so now they're saying, no, the kids are still going to be allowed to eat, which is just the right thing to do. Yeah. Know? They're kids. Like, yo, they're kids. If the parents are either poor or just being negligent, the kids should not st- still starve because of that. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I would pay tax dollars to make sure these kids can eat. Like yeah. that's something that's necessary. So, you know, shout out to California for some of the good things that they're doing out there, man. Yeah, that's one of the things I can say about California. I, I really like, you know, their politics. I really like that. I just can't afford to live in California. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's the gotcha. That is the gotcha for sure. It's like, yeah, politics wise, they are on the right track. But, you know, they just need to lower the cost of living just a little bit, maybe. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um... This this last kind of story. Uh, well, no, this is another story too. Have you heard about Ava DuVernay getting sued? 
Oh, yeah. About the, the police interrogation thing. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, uh, uh, Variety kind of reported that the company, you know, there was the police interrogation technique used in the film that led to the false confessions. This technique is known as, I think, the Reed technique. It was created yeah. by John E. John E. Reed. And, um, you know, it's a technique that many police stations use to, to kind of get confessions and so they're saying i guess i think they're suing for like in this i think defamation of character in a way of uh because of how they felt like she highlighted it in the film that the technique is bad and flawed etc um mm-hmm. you know i just found that interesting that they were going to come for her because of that I'm probably because i'm guessing they're doing this probably because they're getting backlash and maybe other agencies are not trying to use this anymore because they're like also like kind of like a consulting kind of firm where they go and teach mm-hmm. police how to use it and so mm-hmm. if this film came out and now people are probably like they're probably getting less callbacks now they're trying to sue her for like defamation of character and i'd like that's not gonna hold up because yeah. the facts are the facts. If this is the technique they use and it yeah. led to false confessions, that is not, then she's not doing any added sauce to the, to your name, right? Like, Yeah, it's just, it's just what happened. You know, another thing is I kind of read that there were some police agencies that were already kind of moving away from it anyway. So for them to try to like blame it on her, it's kind of like if people don't want to call you back because you're getting false confessions um, and that there's been like kind of some research about this particular technique not being like the most effective. And that's another reason why people are moving away from it, not just because of this film. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. Yeah, <laughs> they're going to try to get their dollar back. But and like I said, I think it's a definitely a long shot. Um, so they just need to take the hit on the chin and find a new technique. <laughs> yeah, um, they really do. The founder of the company isn't even alive anymore either. Yeah, I think it started like 1940 or something like that. I think yeah, technique yeah. kind of began. So, yeah, it's time to to do something new. I'm sure because uh, I'm pretty sure they're approaches from the 1940s <laughs> the old on. War techniques. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the 1940 approaches probably ain't the best anymore. So it's about time to move on, folks. Yeah. Um, and this last, uh, you know, set of stories, which is about the same topic, is, you know, for the past couple of weeks, there's been a lot of conversation about folks who are non-black saying the N-word. <laughs> mm. And and this is interesting. So the first one was uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. He dropped it in a live interview, uh, which was like just completely weird. Oh, and I missed that. You missed it. <laughs> yeah, he was talking about like... Um, uh, racist language uh, used to describe like Italian immigrants in the past. And then he said that his uh, ancestors were often kind of referred to as like inward whites or something like that, I believe, or something along uh-huh. those lines. And I was like, bruh. And so I'm like, you know, and he didn't even like, you know, censor it. He like said it. And I'm like, all right, man, this is, this is, this has become a bit much. So of course there was a like, huge backlash about that. And, um, you know, he wound up kind of apologizing. And then we have, um, I don't know if any of our listeners watch Jane the Virgin, right? I watched that show. Uh, it's over now. But Gina Rodriguez, who is the main character in Jane the Virgin, uh, was caught also saying the N-word. And this one got had a lot of more debate online um, because she was reciting the lyrics to a Lauryn Hill song. She said the N-word while she was on, on the live, just reciting the lyrics to the song. A lot of backlash. She issued an apology. But then other people 
were questioning this, right? Uh, because she is Latina and most folks are like, whoa, why are we like attacking her when it's cool when people like Cardi B use it, right? Or other folks who are a part of, you know, Latin, the Latin, uh, Latino culture, Latino Latinx culture mm-hmm. and blacks. And we see this and there's never that kind of backlash or up, uproar when they say it in their songs or use it. And she was reciting the songs as well being in the same kind of similar background, uh, what's the case? And so, you know, other folks, you know, I think what's his name from, um, Sean Stockman from boys to men was saying like, yo, we should give her a pass. You know, she's, she's Latina. She's saying Latinas are black. Also people were bringing up with a fat Joe said not too long ago in interviews were talking about, you know, Latinos being black. And so there's a lot of controversy, not controversy, but I guess debate on that whole topic. And, um, yeah, you know, when I saw the backlash, I'm like, uh, I really could. I'm like, yeah, I, we are okay with, like I said, Cardi and other folks. It's not that big of a deal. She was reciting lyrics. It wasn't like she was doing anything crazy. Um, so I don't know. It gets, it's interesting, right? And I think I think a part of it, most folks, I think, probably feel she is probably more white presenting, um, and are not used to her and that kind of hearing those things from her, whatever it is. And I think they took it some kind of way versus how they take it with other folks say it. So. Yeah, I would say for that, um, there's a difference between race and ethnicity, um, as we know. I don't know how she identifies in terms of like whether she identifies as Afro-Latino or as like white or Afro-Latina versus like white. Um, I do know somebody presented like this interview she had with um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yara where, you know, somebody was like, oh, Yara, you're such an inspiration to, you know, black, you know, black girls and black women. And, you know, she kind of all lives matter that comment, like um, all women. So it's just like, I don't know how she identifies, Uh, especially making comments like that. Like if you couldn't just let that ride, then I don't know if you're really down for the culture. Um, But like I my own research shows that it's a lot of people that whether you are Afro Latino or not, if you're in certain contexts and certain settings regularly around black people, that a lot of black people just give you a pass because they see like a linked fate situation between black and Latino. So it's, 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 it's more complicated than something like a governor. Oh yeah. Yeah. That one is more complicated. And I think you're right. A lot of the black acts was from that past interview that she had and people were bringing that up and, you know, you're right. She had that kind of all lives matter rhetoric. And then people were like, you know, hey, you can't be, you know, one way in this instance. And then all of a sudden trying to be down in another Like you can't have it both ways. Right. Uh, yeah. And so it, it was interesting just watching her, you know, dynamics with the culture and in public um, from the things she says and stuff like that is pretty. Yeah. Raises some good conversations for sure. And one last like crazy thing that I can't uh, (laughs) that I saw I I forgot to mention earlier Um, so you know did you ever watch that what's that show on Netflix with the the stalker I think we talked about it before oh I know Um, exactly what you're talking about I can't remember the name I can't can't remember the name of it right now but anyway so there's a, a real life situation that happened where this Tokyo man was arrested for stalking a pop star but the reason this made headlines, right, is because of the way he was stalking her and finding her location. Yeah, I know. This guy, 
was finding her location by looking at the reflections in her pupils from her posts, her social media posts. So he would get the high resolution photos, look at Zoom in on her uh, on her pupils because she would be taking selfies, see where she was at. He was able to find her train station that she would use to travel and her apartment complex from the layout of the apartment. And that's what he used to stalk her. I feel like that is wild. Yo. Legit crazy. <laughs> that is wild, man. Um, and how much time that must take to do something like that, too. Like, I don't know, to like see the reflection in the eyes and then find those kind of like locations. Man, he was dedicated, but glad he was caught. And I'm glad maybe more people can be aware of this and maybe yeah. you know, taking, taking yeah, more pictures you. with your eyes shut. <laughs> I don't know what you got. Put some shades on. Oh, you have the reflection on the shades, too. I don't know. Yeah, people have warned, like, oh, be careful about sharing your location. But, like, dang, sharing your eyes? <laughs> I know. That's wild. So, I no, just wanted to throw that out there. But that's all I have for Old Lord News. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, before we get into the topic for today, you know, just want to highlight and, you know, just recognize that we lost a very important person this week. Uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings passed away um, Thursday morning. And so just want to make space for that um, before we get into our topic. For today. Yes, yes, yes. Was a was a real staple for, you know, representing us in Congress and over these past few years. And, and it's been a been a good voice for the people um, in these spaces and making sure that our voices are heard and our, some of our demands are met and, you know, definitely, definitely will be missed. His presence will be missed and all the work that he's done for us and you know, mm-hmm. rest in peace for sure. I just appreciate also, you know, his life story, like the son of sharecroppers. It's crazy. Yeah. This yeah. Is- 20, this is 2019. And yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like how that history, you know, people can talk about get over it, but it's just kind of like our history is still ever present. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, and so, yeah, I mean, this kind of, you know, the topic, uh, the guest we have on this week is Dr. For Christopher Clark, who's an associate professor of political science at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he's joining us today to talk about politics, you know, kind of stemming from our conversation last week about um, getting the vote with Tequila. And now Dr. Clark will come in and talk about his book called Gaining Voice, The Causes and Consequences of Black Representation in the American State. So it's a really, really good book. Uh, and it was really cool to have this conversation about really something we really don't talk about much is like how and what does black representation look like and kind of what causes us to get uh, our seats and representation in office, you know? Mm-hmm. And I also appreciate it, appreciate that it takes the spotlight away from like national politics and yeah, yeah. hones in on something that we don't talk about a lot, but impacts our lives on a daily basis more than any president could. And that is like state legislative politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, also like from last week's interview, you know, Tequila was saying like, that's one of the things that frustrates her with like things in a debate on a national stage is the fact that a lot of them make these promises that they can't keep. Right. Because a lot of what they say they're going to do is at the result of what can be done or has to be done at the local level. Mm-hmm. And so this is very important to kind of fill in that gap and show us, you know, how we get these seats and why it's important to get these seats and maintain these seats um, for, for black folk to make those changes happen, you know, on our blocks, on our streets or whatever. 
Yeah, so without further ado, uh, you know, let's get to this interview with Dr. Clark and then uh, we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. For this week's episode, we continue our conversation on politics, but shift the discussion away from the national landscape and focus on the importance of minority representation in state politics. We interview Dr. Christopher J. Clark, an associate professor of political science at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, about his book, Gaining Voice, The Causes and Consequences of Black Representation in the American States. Specifically, we discuss the importance of state legislation of politics, the factors that shape Black representation, and the link between descriptive representation and policy outcomes. We also have a conversation about how partisanship impacts effective policy representation, policy backlash, and Black public opinion on electoral reform. Welcome, Dr. Clark. Congratulations, actually, on your recent uh, promotion. Thank you so much, Daphne. It's great to be on the other side. I'll I'll put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can't wait to get there too, man. We can't wait to get there with you. I'll be here to welcome you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're excited to get into this book. Um, But before we do, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey to the Academy? I am more than happy to do so. Uh, It's one of my favorite things to do. So I I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, to be exact. And uh, when I was in high school, I actually was on the debate team. Um, you know, one of those debate nerds, I like to argue, and, and it really taught me a lot. And it comes in the, uh, it's very useful these days now as a professor. I mean, people ask you questions and you have to you know, kind of manufacture answers on the spot. But long story short, uh, in that experience, I wound up being one of the few um, African-Americans that, that were part of the debate squad. And so I often had these conversations uh, with my white peers about race, and I was oftentimes one of the, the first black people they actually felt comfortable talking with uh, about matters of race. And this is uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, so just to give you uh, sort of a time frame. And um, it just really got me thinking about representation and my place and, and, and the difference that that made. And so I went on to, to undergrad at uh, St. Louis University, um, a Jesuit Catholic school, again, uh, mostly predominantly white institution, I suppose, is, is the label. Um, and again, that continued uh, having friends, these long conversations at two in the morning, you know, as a first year student, that sort of stereotypical college experience. Uh, and again, a lot of times um, talking with a lot of, of, of white people in particular, uh, and me being one of the first African-Americans they could talk to and ask questions about race and so forth. Um, and then I went to Iowa uh, for graduate school. And again, I should say now, right, not the most racially diverse state, uh, as, as many people know. Um, and, and just being there, in fact, I was, I was uh, the only black uh, graduate student. And for a period of time, uh, there was no, no black faculty member either. And so it really became, um, uh, the experience just continued in terms of being a black person in these spaces and thinking about how did I get there? And then also what, what difference does it make when, when I'm in that particular space? So in many ways, my research grew out of my own personal experience um, of, of being a black person in, in spaces where um, black people weren't prevalent. I'll put it that way. Uh, so, so what Getting to your book, Gaining Voice, what kind of inspired you and motivated you to write this book in particular? Yeah, so I think, uh, excellent question. So for this particular book, what I wanted to do was use the tools I learned, or excuse me, I acquired, I should say, in graduate school, all right? So the quantitative methods, uh, that's really what I rely on in this particular piece of research is how I was trained. And so what I wanted to do was take a question that was personal, uh, but then answer it with with the rigorous statistics and then with the literature review and all that goes into creating academic research. And so I wanted to, uh, to write this book because of that. And actually, uh, a lot of people have studied the topic, uh, but I think what, what my book provides is different 
um, is, is thinking about representation from a, from a multifaceted perspective. And I talk a lot about it uh, in the opening chapter. Uh, but I think oftentimes when we think about representation, we think about it uh, dyadically. We think about, okay, is someone represented by an individual black person, you know, a mayor, okay, uh, a city council member, uh, a member of Congress. And so these are single actors. Uh, these are important ways of thinking about representation. Uh, but for me, I, I think what's useful is thinking about representation from a, from a collective standpoint, all right? So how many black people served in a given legislative body? So how many blacks are on a city council of seven, all right? Are there two, or are there four, or are there six? and thinking about variation in that in that particular respect, or I should say uh, representation from that perspective. Uh, and then the same way, as an extension of that, I should say, uh, this book looks at caucuses, okay? So how do African-Americans, when do they choose to organize themselves in caucuses in an effort to advocate for for, for black interests, okay, and, uh, and help each other out in that respect? And I can talk more about that later if you'd like. Uh, and then also thinking about uh, parity in terms of representation. Uh, so the idea of, okay, African-Americans make up uh, in a state like North Carolina now about 22% of the population. How many African-Americans are in the state legislature? What proportion of state legislators is African-American? And thinking about this from a standpoint of, of fairness, Okay, and I think it's a common way in which people uh, evaluate institutions and, and evaluate representation uh, in particular. And, and so um, that's really one of the things that, that I do here uh, that I was really excited about. And I felt like in, in looking at the extant research, a lot of the focus was on that one-to-one dyadic representation and not so much as thinking about uh, representation in, in these other forms. That's that's really awesome. Uh, one thing I was wondering is because when we you know think about politics, we often think nationally. It's, mm-hmm. it's just a mindset that people have. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, you know, why is it important to focus on black representation at the state level? Like why state legislative politics? I am so glad you asked me this question, Daphne. I feel like one of my uh, purposes in life is to help uh, be an apologist, I guess, so to speak, for uh, for uh, for state politics, or at least go in and try to make people aware of of what exactly uh, why state politics is so important. So, so thank you for that question. Uh, so, I th- I, one of the things that I, I, I try to write about in the book uh, is is to answer that that very question. And long story short. Um, state politics matter in our federal system of governance, okay? And so, yes, the national government has a lot of power and a lot of say, but it also turns out that states matter considerably when it comes to matters of taxation, uh, when it comes to, to spending on education, uh, when it comes to social welfare policies and how generous they are. Um, those are all things affected by uh, by state politics. Uh, and then, actually, I think the biggest one I should have probably let off with is, is election administration. I mean, we've seen that, especially since uh, 2013 with Shelby Beholder um, being gutted and, and the Voting Rights Act being affected, these passage of voter ID laws, okay, and in particular restrictive voter ID laws uh, being able to come into effect, and, and that happens at, at the state level. And so, um, so excellent question, and, and so to answer that, I guess more succinctly, states have considerable power over um, policies that are important to all people, and I think especially to African Americans uh, when we think about things like election administration given um, how bloody the fight for suffrage, you know, was um, for African Americans, even you know, going back to the 1960s, and um, looking at Selma, right, and, uh, and and all that transpired there. So I think it's important to look at states. And, and one other, uh, I guess, more minor point in terms of why I think states matter. If you look at members of Congress, many of them serve in the state legislature prior to reaching that office. And I think I write a bit about uh, President Obama being a great example. All right, he went from being a state senator uh, to the U.S. Senate to. Uh, to serve in as, as, as U.S. president. And so I think that's just a really great way of, of, of sort of helping people become aware of if we are interested in who are likely candidates um, 
to eventually serve uh, in Congress, we have to look no further than the state legislators, uh, state, state legislatures, I should say, uh, to see who those people might might be. Mm. So, yeah, talking about, I guess, black representation in, in state legislation, um, you know, I guess one, why is black representation important with state state legislative politics? Mm-hmm. And then I guess what factors also shape black representation in state legislation politics? Yes. OK, so the way I think about that. Uh, and it's, I should say here, it's, it's, it, it was interesting as from an academic standpoint. So given how personal this is for me, um, uh, it's a question I had to answer in my research, right? You have to justify in many ways, like, what, what are you contributing? Like, what's the big question here? Why should we care? And it was a bit you know, awkward at times, I found, to try to answer that question in my research, right? In actual writing, like, well, what do you mean? I'm black. Of course it's important, right? And so <laughs> but I thought a bit about that. And I think a lot of that actually has to do with uh, the unique history African-Americans have had in this country, all right? If you go back... And you think about uh, think about chattel slavery, right? And then you think about Reconstruction, um, a brief period of time, unfortunately, but it, but it did exist. And then the Black Codes in the Jim Crow era, and then you know, the fight for voting rights in, in the um, in the mid 1960s, which some refer to as the Second Reconstruction. So I think in, in many ways it's important to study a group like African Americans, one of the largest uh, racial and ethnic minorities in the country, right? Just behind uh, Latinos, or Latinx individuals. Um, and, and then with this unique history of, of, of having to fight, right, tooth and uh, tooth and claw to, to actually acquire um, representation or acquire the right to vote and actually be able to wield uh, political power. Uh, to answer your second question, so one of the things that I do in the book is, is two parts. The first part seeks to answer that very question of what explains black representation. And so uh, to give you, a, I guess, a more straight, most straightforward answer, which in many ways I think is is the answer people would expect is uh, places where there are more African-Americans in the state, right, from, from a state population perspective, tend to have um, more black representatives. Now, this is true um, when we look at the, the collective representation, what I call black seat share. OK, so what proportion of state legislators is black in a given year? You know, are blacks 10 percent or are they 15 percent or are they 25 percent? OK, um, so that's a linear relationship. So basically, the more black people you have, the more the higher that black seat share, and, and that fits with with existing literature. Okay, and that's something that, that other people have shown before. Now, what I find to be really fascinating, and actually to be a bit troubling, to be honest with you, is when you look at the black representation ratio or, or that parity measure, that measure of fairness. Okay, so how close to um, the black population is the black seat share in the legislature? That actually is non-linear, curvilinear, and it's actually a bit depressing. And so one of the things that, that I show that, that is new is, okay, states like Iowa, and again, I could, I could pick on Iowa, I haven't lived there, I'm proud Hawkeye, um, there are very few African-Americans in the state legislature, and that makes sense because there just aren't a lot of, of blacks in Iowa. Um, now, as you increase the black population to about eh, maybe 20% or so, so let's go to a state like Missouri, which is more in the 10 11% range, um, and into a state like Delaware, maybe, um, or maybe closer to North Carolina, actually, 21, 22%, you, you get more bang for your buck. That, that representation ratio increases. So blacks are represented in the legislature at a rate that, that um, is close to, uh, to their, their population share. But then what happens is as you go from the 21, 22 uh, to closer to, um, to Mississippi, which is in, in the high 30s, it actually decreases. So in other words, the states like Mississippi, um, like oh, Louisiana, all right, Alabama, all right? And so and it's not just the South, actually. So um, Maryland is actually a state with about 30% uh, black population. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty large. You actually 
uh, you, 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 the black seat share actually moves away from parity. So in other words, blacks are more underrepresented in, um, in Maryland and Mississippi than they are in North Carolina. And so the way I interpret that result uh, is to be evidence of, 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 I think it really ties to voter suppression, to be honest with you. All right. So what's happening is, is lines are being drawn in a way to actually depress the black population in these very places. Uh, and I talk a bit about a racial threat um, as, as a theoretical argument to help explain that particular finding. But long story short, um, what, what, I, what my work provides, which is new, is that instead of us just thinking about uh, black population as having a linear effect on, on how well blacks are represented, uh, it has a linear effect when it comes to seat share, but when it comes to that parity, uh, fairness way of thinking about it, rep the representation ratio is actually nonlinear. Um, and, and so I was, I think from an academic standpoint, I'm pleased that I have something new to say. But, but as I step back and think about the real world, it's actually quite depressing how grossly um, blacks are underrepresented in the Maryland's and, and in the Mississippi's of the world. Mm. Um, so you, in, in addition to like descriptive representation, you also mm -hmm. talk about the concept of policy representation. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the difference between those two concepts uh, for our listeners? Because, you know, some people might feel like descriptive representation representation does equal policy representation. So. Mm -hmm. Happy to answer that question. So I, I think the simplest way to think about that is is descriptive representation. The concept has been around since the late 1960s. Uh, Hannah Pitkin in 1967 wrote this book, uh, which she introduced the concept. And I think the clearest way to think about that is it's a match in, in certain traits between uh, a representative and, and those who they represent. All right. So I often gave the example when President Obama was in office that um, I have as a black male both uh, a descriptive representation, both in terms of, of my race and in my, in my gender identity when it comes to who is the current uh, U.S. president. And so it, it's a way in which I think people often think about representation, right? Someone who looks like them, someone who reflects them in, 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 partic in a particular way. Um, and so people often study it from a gender perspective as well, uh, in addition to race, although my, the focus in my work was on race. Uh, and so that's, that's a descriptive. And, and then the policy representation uh, is, is how well does someone advocate for your interests, all right? So if you are a political moderate, does a person who represents you in, in a particular legislative body, are they also a political moderate? And, and, and so it doesn't matter what color they are, right? You know, regardless of their color, how well do they advocate for your particular interests? Uh, but you are right uh, to make the point that a lot of times people uh, look at the link between descriptive and, and policy representation. I mean, in fact, I do the same thing in my own work. Uh, yet we also know that, that partisanship is really key as well. So in other words, uh, it's, it's been established for a while that the Democrats tend to better advocate for, for interests African-Americans are, are really concerned with their black interests, um, given that the Democratic Party is, is more liberal um, than, than the Republican Party, uh, at least when it comes to, uh, well, in many ways, maybe almost every way, but uh, when it comes to spending on welfare, for example. So that's uh, so an excellent question. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking about like this current political climate and how oftentimes, I guess, when we look at the Democratic debates, you see, I guess, more discussion of black policy issues mm -hmm. and things like that. So let's talk about that a little bit more, I guess, about the, the partisan politics and how do they shape, I guess, active policy representation of mm -hmm. black interests, you know, once a black official is in office, you know, does it play a role whatsoever? Yes. And um, it's, going into my research, 
uh, I, I expected it to be a pretty straightforward uh, relationship. All right, that uh, in places where well, let me back up a bit here uh, to answer your question. So, uh, in, in, consistent with my way of thinking about representation from this multifaceted perspective, uh, one of the things that I think about is okay. So, we, if we care about um, a single black elected official, okay, we focus a lot on the, on a black member of Congress, for example. That's that's really important. They have lots of different ways in which they can advocate for black interests. All right, they they vote in a certain way, for example. And so, a lot of research uh, has looked at that question. And, and I'm not meaning to talk ill of it. You take a step back, however, uh, it's very unlikely that an individual uh, member of Congress, let alone a black individual black member of Congress, will, will be able to shape policy outcomes. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that people who have the most influence, or at least as theories in political science that argue, those who are most influential are those who serve as, as swing voters. So those who are in the middle are going to be the key pivotal vote um, in terms of, of, of whether or not a policy will play out. So in other words, you need collective representation. You need um, a, more people on your side. Um, and the more people on your side, the more people who are like you, uh, the better the chance you have of actually being able to advocate for policies that you care about. So uh, going into this, and this actually fits in nicely with Chapter 4, um, I was expecting that the more African-Americans there are in the state legislature, so the greater the black seat share, the more blacks should have their policy interests represented. You have more people who are like you. You have uh, you have caucuses that are in place that allow blacks to coordinate their lawmaking efforts um, and, 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 um, and lead to greater levels of, of voting cohesion, all right, voting in the same way and being able to communicate, okay, how exactly should we vote on this? particular matter. Um, and, but what I found was something a little bit more complicated, uh, which is that, um, yes, on the one hand, as you have a, a more African Americans in the state legislature, you do actually get improved representation when it comes to education spending. Per pupil spending actually increases in places in states where there's a greater black seat share. And so I was very pleased to find that. And that's evidence that um, African-Americans do, in fact, get better representation when there are more African-Americans around. And then when I looked at welfare, um, you know, first glance, it appears to, to, to be negative, which is that, um, you know, you have more African-Americans in the legislature and you actually end up with, with welfare outcomes that are that are less reflective of, of black interests, that are less generous, uh, for example, um, uh, more more restrictive, I should say. And so what I found really interesting, however, and, and I received some of this pushback from um when I gave presentations or, or, or when I had, had friends, had colleagues give me feedback, uh, they said, well, you know, you ought to really consider um, how party matters, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense that, that um, oh, once you consider the role of the party plays, so it actually goes, goes directly to your question. And so what I, what I decided to do was to say, okay, let me break up my data, all right? So instead of just looking at this direct impact that you know, more blacks in the legislature should equate to more influence. We know that party matters. We, no, we know it. It's been well established that African Americans um, are, are almost all Democrats, those in the state legislature. And so it, it stands to reason that these Democratic black state, state legislators will be most effective, positioned to be most effective, when Democrats are in control of the legislature, right? Democrats are going to be uh, in leadership positions, all right? They're going to have more people like them from a partisan standpoint, who are going to be willing to, to go along with advocating for black policy interests. So what I did is I broke up my data by partisanship, or to be, to be exact, by party control. So what I did was I said, okay, let's look at settings where Democrats hold, the majority, hold um, at least 50% of seats, okay? Let's look, at, let's look at places where Democrats don't hold at least 50% of seats. And what I found was incredibly troubling. And, and, and for those of you who, who like you know, statistics and all that type of stuff. I did almost everything I could. I threw everything I could at this model to try to see if, if I could change this result. But what I actually found was that, um, and, and looking at welfare, is that in places where um, 
there's a, more black people, where the black seat share is greater, uh, the monthly TAN of cash benefits, that, that amount of money that, that a family of three receives from, um, from the government to actually help them subsist, okay, make them, help them survive, um, it actually decreases at, in places as you add an addition, as, as the black seat share increases, okay? The welfare benefits are actually less generous. Cash benefits are actually less generous. So I'll hone in on that finding. To me, that's a finding that, that um, it, it makes the most sense. There's an index that I examine that's a bit more complicated, but I like talking about money, right? That, 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 that mighty dollar, I think. That all of us can understand. So, long story short, the way in which to put this in, in the context, what that means is, um, let's say there are two states. All right, they both are controlled by Democrats. Um, let's look at two periods of time. Let's say Vermont versus Illinois is an, is an example I like to give. Based off of what my findings um, show, what it will suggest is that Vermont will actually be more generous with their monthly tan of cash benefits than Illinois, and we can attribute some of that difference to, or, or that difference can be attributed in part to the fact that Illinois has Chicago, and Chicago has a large black population, which, which leads to many African-Americans serving in the Illinois state legislature. So to answer your question, going into it, I thought, okay, Democratic control and a large black seat chair is exactly where you should expect to see the best black policy representation, right? You have African-Americans who are mostly Democrats in settings where Democrats have the power, where they rule the roost, so to speak. And what I actually find is the opposite. And, and, and it points to backlash. And I think what it really points to is, is the, uh, the difficulty that the Democratic Party has uh, keeping together its coalition. So in other words, and I'm not the first to show this, the Democratic Party is, is, uh, has trouble in the sense that, um, especially since the 1960s, has been the party of black people. Right? LBJ in the 1960s, you know, running against Barry Goldwater in 1964, many points to was the election where the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights and, and, and in turn, the party of, of African-Americans. Um, but what happens is that, you know, not all members, let me just be frank, not, not all white Americans are necessarily on board with, the, with all the policies African-Americans advocate for, okay? Um, and so what ends up happening is the Democratic Party has to both appeal to its, its white members and to its black members, and they don't always agree on everything. That, 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 that's just, <laughs> to say the least. And so um, what I end up finding, I think what, what my findings point to, is the fact that um, what, what I think what, we, what might be going on is that these Democratic leaders actually have an incentive to show that they aren't um, overly attached to black interests. So in other words, in places where blacks are positioned to be the most effective, it's actually where you end up seeing backlash, all right? This idea that as a group becomes more prominent and, and better, better positioned to actually uh, advocate successfully for its policy interests, you actually get pushback you actually see efforts, intentional efforts, to, to limit their political power. Uh, just to tie some things together here, if you go back to the conversation I said about the representation ratio and the fact that the Mississippis and Maryland's actually um, have, low, have a lower representation ratio than, than other places like in Missouri, it, it points to this really troubling finding I have, um, but it's there. The data show that they're there, uh, which is that when blacks actually are more prevalent, okay, and actually positioned to be the most effective, both in terms of, of getting a seat at the table when it comes to this representation ratio and in advocating for black policy interests uh, when it comes to welfare, you actually see backlash, you actually see pushback. So that's, that's a long-winded answer to, to your question, but it, I think it gets at the role of party. Yeah, no, and, and you know, hearing what you're saying and then thinking about even when we just look at how uh, 
I guess, like you said, this, I guess, even with this, within this current political climate, right? And, and historically, when Blacks kind of make major progress, there's mm-hmm. this major pushback. And so I think, um, you know, your your findings draw go parallel with that that kind of narrative. And then my question is also like, how do we, you know, I guess, as Black folks mm-hmm. who want more representation, mm-hmm. who want our policies put on the table and be prioritized, and so when we get this representation, understanding mm-hmm. that pushback is probably going to be coming, how do we prepare for that? How do mm-hmm. we strategize to make sure that, like, when we get the seats mm-hmm. and we get the representation, that we actually get what we want on the table, actually make make it happen? That's an excellent question, and it's one. That uh, one of the things I love about about research is that you know now with this book being done and maybe on the other side of tenure is that that's the very question I'm looking to answer. So I don't have an exact answer for you now, but I've been thinking about it. So yeah, yeah. so I have something to offer there. And so the way I've moved my research is more towards looking within institutions and looking. And so I'm, I'm interested in two ways. Okay. Um, so the first is within institutions, how does this happen, and then also outside of institutions. So let me start with the, with, the, with the former. So I think within institutions, one of the things that I think about is that African Americans have to have leadership power, right? So one of the things that I knew when I finished my book is that as much as um, I looked at seat share, I looked at caucuses and, 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 and you know, made my effort to, to create what I hope to be a real contribution to the literature, I also knew I had this nagging thought in the back of my mind all along that leadership is key. Leadership is key. So in other words, uh, scholars, political scientists know that it's not just having a seat at the table, right? It's actually being able to chair committees. <laughs> it's being able to, call, if you're a speaker of the House in states, being able to figure out uh, figure out what items make it onto the agenda, which eventually get voted on. So long story short, thinking about what scholars refer to as, as political incorporation, which is just this broad term that I often like to think about as being able to wield power. So it's not just having a seat, but it's actually having greater influence based mm-hmm. upon leadership positions. And so the way I think about that is um, being, so to answer your question, being able to get more leadership positions, I think is really key. Uh, and I think the other thing as well is given the makeup of legislatures, being able to get white Democrats on on, on board with the Black Caucus. Um, and I have to, I have to admit, I need. To, I want to talk more. In fact, moving forward, and being in North Carolina, I'm, I'm well positioned to, to talk more with caucus members in the American South. All right, many most Black state legislators serve in this region. So what I hope to do is is, is talk with these individuals and say, hey, how do you go about, you know, advocating for the caucus's interests? Um, so, uh, so I hope to have a better answer. Maybe maybe in five years, <laughs> once I'm able to talk with these folks and, and do some more work. But I do think. I do think leadership and I do think the caucus doing its best um, to leverage the influence that it has. All right. Um, whether it's meeting frequently. Right. Or, or just making sure the members are on board. But I really do think it really comes down to getting white Democrats on board. Right. I mean, it may be even some extent white Republicans to say, hey, can we get can we count on your support? Right. Or just a broader party caucus, I guess, to, to, to be vague, uh, to, to be a little more general, getting the Democratic Party caucus on board um, to actually. Um, push for some of these policies. And so I think, you know, in terms of the actors themselves doing the best they can to be a cohesive voting block and then also bringing on other members, you know, bringing other members on board um, is key. And I think outside the institution is something that, that we can do as, as folks who aren't in the legislature and the broader public can do is, 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 is uh, <laughs> public opinion is a big thing, right? So write your legislators, uh, communicate with them, uh, do your best to keep, you know, keep abreast of what's going on. Um, there are different ways, whether it's different interest groups that are out there or, or different community organizations that might keep track of votes. But I say put the pressure on these legislators, right? Let them know that um, they're going to be held accountable uh, for their for their actions and that, that African-Americans and those who are allies are, are wanting improved representation. We're not just going to stand for um, for things being business as usual, all right, and the status quo, you know, remaining what it is. 
Uh, and I think that does matter. And, and there are actions that, that people can take. And to be honest with you, voting is always a big thing, right? So doing your best to vote uh, and then also maybe being be part of a, of a community organization um, that writes these individuals, that, that lobbies them, right? The different ways in which you can engage the political process as a citizen uh, besides casting your vote. Um, and I think those things can can make a difference. Mm. Speaking of, um, I guess, voting and what we would call political involvement. Ah, yes. um, yeah, you, you saw how I just, you know, when it was smooth. I like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Your book actually does talk about the relationship between uh, uh, descriptive representation or black representation in state, mm-hmm. state legislative politics and uh, political involvement as well mm-hmm. as public opinions. So can you talk about that relationship a little bit? How does representation Happy to do so. change? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm happy to do so. And so um, one of the things, and again, this is something people have looked at before, uh, is this idea of political empowerment, all right? This idea that when a group, especially when it's this underrepresented, I think it's the clearest way to understand this, when they are able to acquire a seat at the table, acquire representation, when they're able to gain voice, um, that actually can have a difference, make a difference in terms of how engaged they are in the political sphere, all right? And so what I do is I build on that existing work and, 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 and think a bit about uh, you know, what is, why exactly is that true? And long story short, uh, well, well, I'll talk a little bit more about the mechanics, but so I think about it in two different ways. What I say is, okay, when African-Americans are descriptively represented, when you have a larger black seat share in the state legislature, this is important in, in at least two ways. One, uh, from a mere symbolic perspective, all right? Uh, so independent of how well your interests are represented substan- substantively, let's just say from a policy standpoint, seeing yourself reflected in government, seeing more black people, it has, it, it, it has this really, it has a, it's important. It matters, right? It's, it's imbued with this sort of meaning. It's different. As much as I do my best to articulate in the book, I've had. I, I, it's, it's just this thing that psychological, right? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stuck for words here, but it matters in that way, right? And it matters because African Americans have had the history that we have and have the, the current political standing that we have, right? So when you see another brother or sister in government, you're like, wow, that's someone like me. And then when you see this large black caucus, you're like, oh my goodness, there are a lot of people like ourselves in office who are advocating for our interests, who are there, all right, and who are black and who are proud to be black state legislators. And so from that symbolic standpoint, it changes how you think about institutions, it changes how you think about government. Government becomes more reflective of you, right, and you have greater faith that the individuals are going to actually, um, government will actually be for you, and so that should give someone a greater incentive to tune into government and as a result be more uh, involved politically. And then there's a piece I was talking about a bit before, um, that I show in chapter four, which is that, hey, when you have an increased black seat share, at least when it comes to something like education, uh, you get better uh, policy representation and, and you want that, right? Like you want to have more people like you in government who are going to better advocate for your interests. So it gives you an incentive to vote, to pay attention to politics, to be involved in politics uh, in order to make sure that those individuals are still there and advocating for you. So vote both, excuse me, from a symbolic and from a substantive standpoint is how I think about the importance of a black, uh, a black seat share uh, for political involvement. And so one of the things that I show in chapter five is that as, uh, and along with my co-author, uh, Ray Block Jr., got to have to give Brother Block a shout out here. Um, what we show in that chapter is that in, in states where uh, the black seat share is greater, um, African-Americans are actually uh, more likely uh, to vote and also more likely to say that they are highly interested in politics. And so I think about those two things as pointing to uh, greater involvement. In fact, uh, Ray Block, my, my co-author I just mentioned, uh, he's, he's thought a lot about political involvement. And so we relied on his work uh, a bit, especially in the front end of that chapter, to, to set up you know, what, what we did there. Um, so that, that, that's the, the explanation that I have in terms of involvement. And it's part of this broader um, 
research around that looks at political involvement. And I think what's new here is um, oftentimes this question of empowerment is looked at, forget from that dyadic perspective. Okay, you're represented by a black member of Congress. How does that change the way a black person engages in and thinks about politics? How much they are involved in politics? And that's it's very important. I'm not meaning to talk ill of that, but I also think that, hey, like, you might think about overall representation, right? This overall seat share is, is having um, having an effect as well at the state level as well. And so um, that's what I think is neat about, one of the neat things uh, about Chapter 5 that, that we're able to show. And uh, in terms of the public opinion, that story is a little more complicated, but I, I'm still happy to talk about it. And I've thought a lot about it, as you might imagine. Uh, the way I think about it is... Okay, you could think about electoral reforms, okay? And it's public opinion toward electoral reform. So let me give you, the, I think the clearest example here would be, um, let's say voter ID laws, okay? And so these laws that require that people actually show um, photo identification. So one of the things that I've thought about um, a lot, which is, okay, there are different electoral reforms, and we might think how well someone is representing the government might actually shape how willing they are to support changes to the rules that govern the act of voting, okay? And so if you were re really well represented, um, if you're a black person in a state like a Mississippi or a North Carolina, okay, where that black seat share is, is pretty high, given that these are states with larger black populations, you might not be really willing, uh, you, you might be much more opposed to, I should say, um, the implementation of a photo ID law, okay? And the reason why is because that, voter, that photo ID law might disenfranchise African Americans. It, it serves as a threat to the descriptive representation that you experience and that you that you value, all right, that's important to you, and so it might actually make African Americans um, in states like uh, North Carolina and, and Mississippi less willing to support a photo ID law as compared to African Americans in a state like Iowa or Idaho, and actually have evidence that that is consistent with that that line of thinking. And I think what's really neat about that, especially um, when we think about Black politics, is that. You know, going into this this particular line of research, um, I think it, it, it really is logical to expect there's not going to be any variation in terms of how blacks think about electoral reform. All right. Like electoral reform is often election laws have often been used to disenfranchise black people. Right. To make it more difficult for blacks to wield political power. And so for good reason, people might think there's no reason to expect, you know, where you live in a country as a black person to affect how willing you are to support a photo ID law. But I actually think. That's actually challenge that assumption and say, well, no, given variation and how well you're represented, given how um, much difference exists in terms of how much you, you might lose. Right. So if you, if you implement a, voter, a photo ID law in Mississippi, uh, you can go from having a black seat share of near 30 percent to one a lot lower. Right. You, that, that, that <laughs> you can drop a lot more than you can in a place where the black seat share is two percent and it goes from two to one. What they do but if it goes from um, almost 30 to 22, that's 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 a much bigger potential threat. So anyway, now to answer your question there, um, in those chapters five and six, what I do is look at how the difference that, that uh, black representation makes. What, you know, what are some consequences of black representation? Uh, chapter four looks at policy, and then five and six uh, look at involvement and in, uh, public opinion, uh, respectively. Um, and I, I think it, it tells us something important, the involvement, like why is it important to have black representation? It's not just important for policy interests, but it can actually increase the extent to which a marginalized and upper, upper underrepresented group is engaged in the political process. And I think in our representative democracy, ha, we, need, we, need, we need to do it as much as we can, right? That's a really powerful thing. And then in terms of opinion, it complicates the story of how African-Americans think about um, electoral reforms. It shows that representation has some influence there. Yeah, you know, and I'm, and I'm thinking also about a, 
because you're talking about voter ID laws and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm thinking of recent news and, you know, I think back in June with the Supreme Court's ruling on like gerrymandering mm. and stuff like that. Do you think this, the, I guess the behavior of gerrymandering will influence kind of any of the findings or outcomes mm. or any sh- way, shape or form of what you've been finding in your mm-hmm. book and mm-hmm. this kind of stipulation? No, excellent question. And I want to go back. I think a lot of, and that's where I think chapter two, um, really comes into play, right? And so what I, even though I don't look at redistricting, because what I want to provide is a state level analysis of what's going on as opposed to like district by district, um, definitely the question of gerrymandering and redistricting is something that I try to address uh, in in the discussion section. But to answer your question, I I think it does matter a lot, right? Because what I I actually think is going on in terms of the representation ratio and why um, it's so much lower in in Maryland and in Mississippi, these states with these large black populations compared to, to those with smaller black populations is because of how redistricting happens. It's because of gerrymandering. It's because these state legislatures, right, do just enough to to uh, address uh, the VRA uh, restrictions that are in place, you know, in terms of how lines have to be drawn. And they don't want to get sued necessarily, right? Maybe some of them just don't care. I, I won't go on record and say who, but some states <laughs> don't care, but, but some of them do. But long story <laughs> short, what they do is do just enough, all right, to follow the, the letter of the law, um, but they don't really go above and beyond to really try to maximize black descriptive representation, right? And so what I think ends up happening and what will end up continuing happening is, is that gerrymandering will happen in a way that is not meant to maximize uh, black descriptive representation. And given my findings, it will suggest that that's gonna happen more in places where blacks are, are more prevalent in terms of their, of their population share. So to be honest with you, I mean, what I would love to see um, and maybe it's because I live in North Carolina. So let me just go on record here now, too. I mean, I haven't lived here in eight years. And anybody knows anything about redistricting, you know, North Carolina comes to mind. You know, you can count on a few things in life, all right? Death, taxes, and there being some sort of lawsuit related to redistricting in North Carolina. I mean, that's just one of those things I often say. And um, it's just, it's true. And I think the reason why is because it's fraught with conflict, right? There's so much on the line. And, you know, there's moves towards, you know, commissions and, and, and so forth and other ways of drawing lines. And I think the evidence is still out in terms of just how effective those things are. I was just on the dissertation defense yesterday that, that suggested that that might be true. But long story short, I think most of us can agree that how we do things now is far from ideal, right? And, and that something ought to change. And um, I, I, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's fair to African-Americans to, 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 to be caught in the middle of this game, right? Where, um, where their interests aren't necessarily prioritized or where it's like, okay, you have to, you have to make a trade-off. You say, okay, what I'll do is um, let's focus the black population in one district. And what that does, and what my research is consistent with that, what that does is that, that, that basically guarantees you you'll get descriptive representation, okay? So look at Alabama, for example. So it's a great example. Out of their seven members of Congress, there's one black person. The state Mississippi, out of their four members of Congress, there's one black person, okay? So what happens is you get that majority black district, all right, the majority minority district, and it, it almost guarantees you descriptive representation that there will be a black face representing that district, all right? But what you give up in the process is that these other districts, those surrounding districts, have far fewer black people. <laughs> and so those white representatives, at least in the case of, of the Alabama, Mississippi, um, have far less incentive to advocate for black policy interests because the voters aren't there to hold them accountable. And so you end up with, and again, this, this research has been established for over 20 years now, this trade-off between uh, descriptive and substantive representation, policy representation that exists. Um, and that's where gerrymandering comes in, all right? And so in many ways, African-Americans have to make a deal to say, okay, we really want descriptive, right? It really matters, it's really important. And all, a lot of times, especially in the South, end up having to give up some of that policy representation uh, as a result. Mm, wow. Uh, yeah. 
important insights. And I think one of the uh, things that I really appreciate about the book is the focus on state politics. I remember after the last election, you know, people, a lot of people were so distraught. And um, mm-hmm. I saw more people talking about the importance of like local and, you know, mm-hmm. state politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your closing chapter, you actually, um, you know, you spoke about political empowerment and you said that descriptive, uh, black descriptive representation in the U.S. House is not shown to empower blacks, suggesting uh, that yeah. scholars may be looking for empowerment in the wrong place. And so, one thing I appreciate about this book is it not only focuses on state legislative policy, politics, but it also talks about like the complications and, you know, how descriptive representation might not uh, uh, translate into policy representation Mm -hmm. and what we should be thinking about a little Mm -hmm. bit more. So I just have to say, I really appreciate um, your insights. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It, um, it's tough to, to, to write those words, right? And I remember writing them, actually. It's so funny. And you would think after <laughs> all the words have been written. But I remember trying to think about how to, how to say that in a way. Because uh, I don't want to uh, upset congressional scholars, right? I don't want to downplay the importance of Congress and, and, and um, the Black Caucus. But no, I mean, I do agree with you. Yes. Um, and something I didn't really highlight much. So thank, thank you for bringing it up, which is that um, uh, scholars have mixed results in terms of how much, how important is a single Black member of Congress for empowering someone, for, for making someone likely to vote and, and so forth. Um, and, and so I thought, well, hey, if we think about states and we think about representation as more in this broader way, it might help us better understand what's going on, right? This idea of there actually, the importance of representation being closer to you, right? Maybe potentially being important uh, when, it, when it comes to empowerment. Uh, but thank you. And, and again, as I said at the beginning, I feel like so much of my career is, uh, I hope to devote to, to explaining to people why states matter so much. Uh, I, and I want to, if I can, at least plant a seed for, for other for burgeoning scholars out there to pay attention to states. Now, what I will say is the data can be incredibly difficult to collect. I'm trying to think of the most diplomatic way of putting that. All right. You go to Congress, you can easily you know figure out uh, how many black people serve there. All right. Really great search tools. And you can get a really clear sense of how the black members of Congress are voting. Um, getting the data on how many blacks serve in the state legislature is, 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 is quite uh, much more difficult. Um, and it's also difficult to get a sense of, of how, how these individuals vote. But I think this, it's so important. I think, it'll, I think we're allowed to, we're actually able to answer so many more questions when we look at state politics because you get the variation that you need as a quantitative scholar, right? You have a Mississippi that's almost 30% black. You have an Iowa that's far lower, or an Idaho, a Montana. And so you can actually see what difference does that, does that make going from 3% to 30%. But when you look at Congress, you don't get that wide range of variation, all right? You might get 10% and then 6% and then 8%. And that, that you don't, you're not able to leverage the same amount of, you, you can't leverage the data in the same way. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's one, I think one consequence is you're, is you're getting at is, you know, one implication of, of 2016, especially going from having President Obama for eight years, uh, which I think uh, maybe uh, you know, spoiled a lot of us, right? To say, oh my goodness, right? You know, President Obama's there, he, he's looking out for black interests. And then when things change, right, you realize that, wait, the, the occupants of the White House and the Oval Office, it's, it's changed, right? There aren't the same folks there, uh, and they aren't as committed to representing black interests um, as prior occupants. And so I think, yeah, people start looking to other places, um, states and localities, uh, to think about how they can actually leverage their influence there and potentially get, get policy representation there. Nice, nice. Well, 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 Dr. Clark, you know, you know, we want to thank you um, for for taking the time to come chat with us. You know, I think uh, it's definitely important in this time frame where I think more people are 
becoming more politically active and engaged mm. than they have in the past. Mm. And I think especially with black folk trying to figure out how we can make sure that a lot of our policies and things are are on are prioritized and mm. how we can get more representation. So I think your book is definitely sorely needed in this particular time for sure. And it's definitely a timely piece. Um, so for all our listeners, we definitely urge you, we'll put the link up for sure, but we want you all to definitely go check out this book, read it some more and figure out how we can, you know, push our agenda forward with this knowledge that's being presented. Um, outside, you. you know, we're, and outside of that, is, you know, where can, if people want to, I guess, follow your work, are you on social media, anything like that? People want to reach out to you. So I think the best, so I'm, I'm a little old school here uh-huh. and, and, I, and I need to, I need to up my game. I had, <laughs> I've had friends tell me that. And uh, so I, I think this, you all, I think this podcast, you all, I'm, I'm, I'm slow. I'm not too rigid, but I'm, I'm just kind of, like, I still think finally like the Nintendo 8-bit from way back in the day. And I'm, I'm like that, you know, 35-year-old guy that's already 65 at heart. But long story short, um, I'm not on social media um, in terms of Twitter and all that, but I, I might be. Give, give me a little bit of time here. Um, but I think the easiest way is I have a website. Um, that's that's tied to, to UNC political science, which is where I work, and so and I'm and I'm always checking my email. So if anybody wants to email me with any questions, I'm more than happy to talk with you. And my website actually, I actually I pay much I pay a lot of attention to that. I try to update it, and so um, there's actually a link to the book there, um, and and I have other other articles that are there, and I talk a bit about my, my biography, my backstory, and, and all that, uh, just to try to, to have that information available to people. But yeah, so between the website, which if, if you put in my name, Christopher Clark. Uh, political science or, or Christopher Clark UNC, um, you know, it should come up. And um, and then also my email, uh, which, which is available as well. I mean, I, I will re- uh, reply to people. Uh, but yeah, let me think a little bit here. I think this podcast might get me, you know, moving towards the, maybe the world of Twitter and some of these other, other places where I can <laughs> communicate ideas. Well, my advice would be start with one. It's okay. Social media is just yes. be crazy. So just find one that works for you. <laughs> well, I, I should say I am on Facebook, folks. I'm not that bad because the folks say, oh, this man, who is this brother, man? <laughs> I am on Facebook. You know, and the thing is, I, I signed up back before uh, our parents and, and other older relatives could sign up, and I've seen it change. Mm-hmm. And so it's anyway, I won't, I won't throw Facebook on the bus, <laughs> but it's just different when you see your auntie and uncle what they're up to. It's like, it's not the same as, as uh, here. But anyway, no, I'm on Facebook as well, folks. Um, they're, 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 I think my pops might be the only other black Chris Clark on there. Um, and uh, So I'm, I'm the younger version, but uh, you should be able to find me there as well, although I'm not not, not necessarily very active. Um, but yeah, that's why I said the email and, and, um, and website are, are probably the best ways. Well, awesome. we'll link those uh, so people can easily connect with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I really do. And I will say the book, and this is this is great. Thank you all again for reaching out to me. Because um, one of the things I did my best, at, and I won't, I'll let others be the judge of how successful I am, is I really tried to, to thread a needle between writing uh, an academic book, you know, and just all this esoteric language and, and inside language, well, with one that could appeal to a broad audience. So, so thank you all, the BHC Podcast, for giving me an opportunity to talk. Because in rereading the book, I mean, I had there's certain things I had to do to make it you know, sort of egghead political science type of type of work. Um, a lot of it actually tied to tenure, to be honest with you. And, and again, I'm not saying it was impossible to write or, or, or too, you know, too, too difficult to jar, right? There are standards of professionalism. Uh, but at the same time, um, right, there are a lot of statistics there um, and things like that. So I did my best to make it and write it in a way that um, would appeal to people who don't necessarily care about OLS and regression assumptions and so on and so forth. Um, but, but there is, that is part of, part of the product as well. Uh, so thank you all for allowing me to, to, to bridge this gap. I think that, uh, that might exist. Um, You're welcome. We were happy to have you. It was a sure. amazing conversation. Mm-hmm. All right. 
All right. Thank you, Dr. Clark. Thank you all. That's what you think about Dr. Christopher Clark coming in to, to bless us about his book, Gaining Voice. Um, I thought the interview was really good and it it just it had me thinking about the way some of our current candidates are think or speaking about black issues and black representation and just like, hmm, it has me looking at, you know, some people, I don't want to say differently, but it's thinking about how uh Politicians of color have to navigate uh, the waters around advocating for black policy issues. So, yeah. 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 I mean, <clears throat> reading through the book and listening to him during the interview, it's just like, um, I guess, and I it's kind of, you know, I think one of the effects that he uh, alluded to in his book is like, you see the pros and the cons of black representation. And, and I guess one of the things that I, I've been, you know, just thinking about it, it's just like, man, we work so hard. It's like, it's like just a lot for us to get on our, uh, you know, a seat at the table. And then it's like, when we get the seat at the table, it's still so much more to consider and think about, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of strategizing, a lot of like, okay, how, what kind of effect will this have? And just knowing that, you know, for us, it's just not as simple as having the representation, right? Mm-hmm. Because even just having that will make it even harder in some instances to get what we want. <laughs> Um, it's like, damn, man, like, what can we do to win? You know, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in and really to wrestle with, you know, even as we move forward at the national elections. But I like, like, like you mentioned in the interview is, is the focus of, of, you know, state and local politics too, and how that matters Mm -hmm. and understanding the intricacies of that is important. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is I've seen a lot of online discussions about like, what does the black caucus do? And this, this is like national, you know, what do they do? What have they done for us lately? And we as a people cannot have our interests represented um, with black or uh, politicians of color alone. They need allies. So even as you are thinking about like voting for people, to what extent are they focused on black issues? To what extent would they be allies to the black people that we want to vote in? So, you know, I guess we just have to think more broadly. It's not just about Democrat getting in. Is is it a Democrat that is willing to support issues that people might think are taboo? And any black issue sometimes is thought of taboo. It doesn't have to be like reparations, but it, it could be anything black and it can be taboo. So it's just kind of like, thinking about the debates and thinking about who's willing to say the word black, who's willing to talk about our policy issues in terms of like um, potential white uh, candidates or, or white elected officials. I think we have to think about that as well because our, our people, they need allies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just um, one I'm thinking of like, okay. One thing I would be interested to see, and I wonder if, you know, Dr. Clark will pay attention to this too, is say, say uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren wins or I don't know, whoever, right? And, you know, they've been very vocal about explicitly addressing black issues and black matters. And I wonder if it's on that big of a national stage, will it empower or push more white politicians and liberals and Democrats who also adopt that same language where it won't 
be seen as like political suicide or taking a risk? Um, will it, will that kind of will it have like a trickle down effect on state politics or will it not? I'm not sure if it will either way, but I think that'd be interesting to like look at that. If it, if it, if that does happen, because we've seen it happen with Trump on the reverse side, right? Like <laughs> he's empowered the supremacists, and they've become more vocal and 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 putting their feet, digging their feet in the sand with their stances. Um, so I wonder if it'll have kind of the same effect on mm-hmm. on the other side, folks. You know, I'm actually thinking about the squad. So uh, thinking about the relationship between representation and political empowerment, not necessarily the outcomes, but how like that symbolic representation matters. And so it makes me think about the squad and how I do feel like, you know, AOC, uh, Ayanna Priestley and the other uh, junior uh, Congress uh, women are empowering people and how much their presence means for people and how is, you know, rallying people up. So, um, it sucks to think that their presence might not have very much, um, I guess, policy impact, but that maybe it is riling people up, especially at the state and local level to say, hey, I can do this as well. And I mean, on the flip side, too, we also see how their presence uh, uh, explicitly uh, demonstrate like has the backlash right? mm-hmm. <laughs> like, by them just being there we can see the target and the backlash of their presence and i guess the how they threaten you know the status quo of what it's traditionally been and i think even if they may not be as successful as pushing forward certain agenda items i think they are successful in the sense of you know uh, um, putting these uh, certain people and these uh, republicans whoever on their heels and um you know Showing, show, having them show their true colors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess my last thing too is, is one I think um, when he was talking about this and even kind of even our conversation is like, you know, he mentioned the getting, gaining the support, like you said too, gaining support of like white Democrats. And that, of course, that is something that will be a, a critical element in pushing our agenda forward. But then I always wrestle like, how, I wrestle about how do we do that, right? In a way, is it, doing it in a way where we have to compromise? Is it doing it in a way where we have to convince them? Uh, I don't know. It's just like, it's like, you know, cause there are some people who feel that like with the, when it comes to the black agenda that we shouldn't compromise. And, you know, I agree with that a lot too. Um, and it's like, but we have to like explain our situations to white folks in order to get them to fully understand and will they truly get it? So we have to like explain it in a way that say, Hey, if you do this, there's benefit for you. Or, Hey, if you do that, you just need to do this cause it's the right thing to do. And what will get more of them on board? You know, I'm not sure, but I just wonder how that dialogue would happen when we're trying to get more support from from the white liberals. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. Um, I probably don't have the most positive view of politics. And I feel like a lot of those things, it's kind of like the quid pro quo, like, what can you do for me to see what I can do for you? Um, so, you know, that's a, mm, that's, that's a good question. And... One that I don't have an answer to. Yeah, I don't have an answer because I, I think like I try to put myself in people's situations and I know like if I was in a position of power or political influence, you know, I would things like poverty, you know, things like immigration, you know, whatever it is, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, what will these immigrants, you know, do for me? You know, how would this help out black folk? It wouldn't. That's the way my thought process was like, yo, it's just the right thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, to help these families and, and, and to and to and to save these lives. Um, so it wouldn't be a question. And so I just 
I find it a little problematic that when it, sometimes when we put our things on the table that people think in that terms, well, how will this help my my white folk out? Or I don't want to wake white folk upset. It should be just the right thing to do yeah. in these certain situations. So, so I don't know. Yeah. The big questions. The big questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but other than that, you know, we'll thank Dr. Clark once again for I'm taking this time to come talk with us about his book, Gaining Voice. Check out the links on the post uh, so you can check out the book and, and some of the work that he does and follow him from this point forward. Hopefully we'll we'll catch him on social media eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what? It's probably a good thing um, because it probably even helps even more with like work-life balance. Oh, I was about to media say. can be a job, so. Yes, he probably, like, you just like, yeah, just to have that feeling being disconnected, like, mm-hmm. uh, all the time you know mm-hmm. like that's I guess he I guess it's kind of cool because he probably doesn't know the feel I'm probably sure he has his own things and hobbies that he but it, you know social media just takes up so much time man. Um, it does so so it's not it's not always a bad thing but I'm sure he would get involved when he gets involved it'll be you know because a lot of people have political commentary and stuff on things that goes on people will probably want to hear his perspectives on a Facebook or a Twitter mm-hmm. Instagram probably if you're listening to Instagram probably wouldn't be your, your favorite go to yeah that you do it'll probably be Facebook or Twitter uh, that I think you you would like more. Uh, that's just you know little PhD advice. <laughs> uh, but thanks, Dr. Clark, for taking the time to come chat with us. For our listeners and for our new listeners who haven't, if you haven't yet, follow us on social media. The handle is at PhD Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com, to keep up with all our latest content. You can also email us, phdpodcast at gmail.com, with any questions, um, any guest ideas, anything, whatever it is, email us. We love our feedback from our listeners and your involvement and engagement. Um, you can also sh- uh, review and rate us on iTunes, if you haven't did that yet, that really helps us out. So just take some time to go write a quick comment, leave a five-star review. We appreciate it. Um, and after you do that, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor of the worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.